Hey, bro, how you doing? I'm blessed, bro. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Um, it's been a challenging week. Uh, I think you've had a, a similar week of similar week of challenges. Uh, a lot going on. I think the main issue is just nobody really knows how to handle the life that we're living at the moment, and as a result, work is panicking, trying to scramble for new solutions, uh, new yep. ways of working in order to make the most of this situation. And the people who can and the people who are willing to maybe be a bit more flexible are the ones who are getting dragged into the trenches to try and make some successes happen. You can say that again. Say that again. We're in completely different industries, but it sounds like you can hear my pain. Talk to me. Oh, bro, it has been a challenging week. I haven't had one of these weeks for a while. Um, after a few weeks of entering into this very surreal utopia within the dystopia um I, I i say that in that my home nuclear home has been quite bliss um really effective in terms of work family relationship time however that cocoon has been happening in the wider tragedy which is covid and then this week my kids decided to say you know what it's it's us first and i just i couldn't work around them at the same time that the madness was kicking off of work with different things that we're working on um, my kids just didn't want me to work at all. So I had to work around them sleeping, which led to a lot of late nights. But it's, 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 we've got through it. It's an interesting one. They were conspiring together. They, they held a, a, a union meeting. Listen, over there, their oats and their Weetabix, they played. Hand signals, eye signals. Okay, on three, two, one. They go for it. <laughs> it's, 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 it's been good. It's just recalibrating to this new normal um, how's yours been yeah as i said I, I i think right now is a very odd time for a company like mine because it is business as usual we are still expected to deliver working for a technology company people expect you to be able to adapt to this environment you're a technology company how are you going to let something like this slow you down uh, as a result, we're working from home. Everybody is working from home and we're still expected to produce the same level of output that we were producing previously. Um, yeah. And with that in mind, I think what has been missed is the empathy needed to understand that people are still adjusting to this period. Uh-huh. This is a very odd period from a biological psychological standpoint waking up in your bedroom and commuting to work uh when i say commuting to work i, I mean moving from your bedroom to your kitchen uh, <laughs> it is, is a very different experience and you, you you go two ways you either find yourself making some very sophisticated excuses not to do work you finally clean uh, the, the skirting board of your living room with a toothbrush because you're procrastinating and you just want to do anything other than work or you end up working until 11 o'clock at night and I've done both yeah and trying to manage that while also trying to purchase a house and plan a wedding can can take its toll we officially have tangible first world problems. 
Honestly, I've got the hummus and the carrots with me right now. I am middle class. <laughs> oh, bro, you know, I, I was at a mentoring meeting a couple of weeks ago and I, I used an analogy of trying to buy back your time. And I just said, I, I said to the girl, listen, um, this I'm very middle class, but we've got a cleaner and she, during those few hours when she's in our house, it allows me to read to my kids. And I just heard what I said and I realized... <laughs> We've gone come so far from Peckham and Brixton. <laughs> 18-year-old Afalabi would be spinning. Oh, wow. You've changed, man. I've sold out. You've sold out. Sold out. He'd take, his, he'd take his earring out in disgust and throw it on the floor and say, you're a different man. <sighs> He'll rob me. <laughs> he would. <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome to another episode of Expensive Lessons. Um... Each and every week is another expensive lesson. Uh, thank you for sticking with us. Thank you for joining with us. Thank you. Seriously, guys, we really appreciate it. Um, I want to jump straight into a question, which um, I keep on being asked. And I think it's it's such a simple question, but the answer to it reveals a paradigm shift and a certain mindset. And the question is, how are you doing this podcast during COVID? And I want to add to that, why are you doing it? So how are we doing this podcast during COVID? Because we're not sat together in Liverpool Street doing an open workspace. Yeah, I'm, we're currently about how many miles apart, would you say? 14 miles, maybe? 14, 15 miles. Oh, yeah, 15 miles away, probably. From, from each other. Um, I'm in my kitchen right now. Uh, just sitting, with my kids. sitting on my breakfast table. And right now we're actually conducting a FaceTime call and I am using the QuickTime player on my laptop to record this conversation. But that's not how we started doing this podcast. So anybody who listened to episode one and two might notice a slight difference in quality. And we actually just kicked off by doing Zoom calls, uh, having a Zoom meeting and using the in-app function to record the audio and then uh, upload that audio to YouTube. But as we started to appreciate that people were paying attention, a surprising number of people were paying attention, we decided that our audio quality needed to improve. And we had a couple of stumbles along the way. There are a few issues that you'll never know about where audio cut out for large chunks yeah. or... Uh, signal was bad, so uh, it, we sounded very distorted. But we've tried to adapt our approach. So as I said, we started off using Zoom calls and uploading to YouTube. But following uh, a really useful conversation with one of my close friends who told me a bit about a, a platform called Anchor, uh, A-N-C-H-O-R, which allows you to upload audio and it does the rest for you. So it will post your audio to Shopify, uh, I said Shopify, Spotify, uh, various other um, streaming, podcast streaming sites. And that's how we're doing it uh, from this point on. Of course, Apple has to be different. So anybody who seen a, a recent announcement from us, we finally got this podcast greenlit by Apple. They've approved it. Um, yeah, absolutely, we should, because that wasn't easy. Uh, they definitely made it slightly more difficult. There was a 10-day approval process, 
I then needed to send them an email to prove to them that I was who I said I was. And then there was a back and forth between them. But I'm, I'm, I'm talking in a bit of detail here, but uh, the, the main takeaway is that this is relatively easy to do. Right now we're speaking on our laptops using the QuickTime Player audio recording uh, system. And all we're going to do is upload this content to, to Anchor. And then Anchor will do the rest. It will actually uh, distribute the podcast to all of the different uh, streaming sites that we currently use. But, but the tools are simple. Mm. Um, those Michelin star restaurants that you go to, they're using on the most part the same tools that you have in your kitchen. The tools are always simple. But I think the key is the mindset behind it. Now, Abby, who's been like really pushing this, has used those simple tools, which other people would have overlooked, to solve a problem, which was, how do we start this during COVID? It's not even like we continued it during COVID. <laughs> we started it when we weren't face-to-face. And that mindset is the mindset which will really set certain brands and companies and directors apart. If you can really solve issues in the chaos, using the tools which are all around you, and just, just pull them together. How can they work alongside one another? You will survive. And then after that survival, you will thrive because players would have dropped off. You're, you're right in identifying the mindset. And when there's a problem, we have a few different responses. Either the problem is too big for us to solve and therefore we walk away. Or the problem is highly complex Therefore, we need an elaborate solution to solve this problem. What is typically the answer is the problem requires ingenuity and innovation and the application of ready-made solutions in a different context. Mm-hmm. So you, you, we've probably all heard and used that, that old adage, you know, don't reinvent the wheel. And this is exactly that. Why reinvent the wheel when people have spent time and effort building solutions in the 21st century that are now free, which will allow you to, to, to get your voice heard by hundreds and thousands or and almost thousands of people at this stage. And I think that's something that people need to appreciate in the 21st century in the Western world, which is the solutions at your fingertips are so advanced and so mind-blowing that the Thomas Edisons of the world, the Albert Einsteins of the world, would have been absolutely blown away by what somebody sitting on their couch eating a pack of Doritos has access to. Um, And it's all it is is about framing the problem in a way that can be solved. And that's, that's what we've done here. So This isn't necessarily the best way to tackle the problem of how do you build a podcast during COVID season, but it is a way. And I'm I'm sure people are going to come to me with multiple other suggestions as to how I can improve the audio or how we can improve the the distribution of the podcast. Please do, because that's what happens in industries where you solve an issue for yourself. People become aware of it and they offer you suggestions on how you can improve it. And suddenly, you're in the conversation. And I imagine everyone who's listening to this just wants to be in the narrative. They want to be in the conversation, in the arena. My question is, why? 
Good question. And before I answer that question, I want to give one more bit of insight, which is I did receive a very short question uh, earlier this week about our logo. Someone just asked me, how did you, um, who made the logo for you? Uh, and it was me. I made it. Uh, and I made it on PowerPoint. Um, and I, once again, I just want to share that bit of information that there's nothing special going on behind the scenes. It's just people using the tools that they have access to, to, to build something that's usable. So how much did it cost us to get to this point with our podcast? Zero. No money at all. Um, we on Apple, baby. <laughs> yeah. We've, well, to be fair to us or to be fair to anybody starting, we already did have some powerful hardware. We both have MacBook Pros, which helps. Um, but we didn't have to spend an additional penny in order to get this podcast up and running. On to your question. Why? Why did we do this? Why? Well, we were faced with a serious challenge, which is how do we continue to grow during a period where most companies in our industry are receding? And the answer to that for me, was we need to do something that we've never done before. We can't, <laughs> we can't do something, we, we can't just expect to achieve growth by doing everything that we're already doing in a different way. We need to be transformational and innovative. innovative. So we need to do something that we've never done before. And we have to take some inventory of what we do and how we do it. And one of the things that we've kicked around uh, between me and Afalabi back and forth for years now is how do we join a community that doesn't look like us? <laughs> and what I mean by that is I am a six foot one black male. Um, Afalabi is a six foot black male. Um, most of our clients are Black women, uh, Asian women, some white women. So they, not only do they not look like us, but as you can imagine, they've got completely different interests and tastes than, than us. Nobody's going to, uh, none of my clients, well, let me not say none, very few of my clients are going to sit down and listen to me talk about the uh, 2019 Champions League final. I don't want to talk about that either, bro. <laughs> Listen, you're going to have to face it uh, eventually. Afalabi's an Arsenal supporter. Um, but, so, so how do we have a meaningful conversation with our clients? That was a discussion that we had. And one of the things that we know our clients care about is how, how did we build this? How did we build a hair and beauty business being two males who knew when we started very little about hair and beauty. So the aim of this podcast really is to actually pay back some of our loyal clients, the people who have actually supported us, helped us buy houses, um, by sharing information with them that they actually care about. It's shocking to me how many of our clients would like to be entrepreneurs. And I can't give them the best um, tutorial on how to get a flawless smoky eye or the best tutorial on how to dye 613 hair 
so that it's absolutely sleek and perfect. What I can give you is insight on how to create a profitable, well-run business. So that was really the question, uh, and, and apologies if I'm kind of going around it a bit, but the question really was is we need to do something that we haven't done before. And we talked about this previously. Whenever we want to do something different, we have to ask ourselves the question, how are we adding value to our ecosystem? How are we giving more than we are asking for? And this for me just made sense. As a result of engaging with our clients and serving our clients over the last five years, we have learned so many lessons that our clients actually probably want to hear about. So now we're creating a platform where we can share those lessons. And, and it became a natural progression because just gradually, um, collectively and individually, we were called into mentorship with people who are creating brands, startups, whether it be in art, tech, hair and beauty, fashion. And we were doing what we realized actually we should maybe do a little bit more of. And in a humble standpoint, just sharing our mistakes and not necessarily sharing our fountain of knowledge because our understanding is continuing to grow. And what selfishly I'm really enjoying about this process is, again, I can speak to my best friend for a couple hours every week, but we are reflecting upon really pivotal and important moments in our lives, sometimes with humor, sometimes with absolute dread, <laughs> um, but learning upon the way and not hopefully not making those same mistakes in the future. And, and to add to that, one of the other questions that I wanted to ask myself was how do I challenge myself in 2020? How do I push myself to to go beyond my comfort zone in 2020? And a podcast definitely does that. I promise you now, when I listen back to the, the podcasts that I've produced so far, I cringe. I cringe at every single one of them because I, all I can think of is I sound like an idiot. I sound so dumb. Um, and I, I, I listen to it in double time so I don't have to listen to my own stupid voice. But there's a there's a an issue that I wanted to address around becoming a more well-rounded individual. The importance of public speaking, the importance of communicating a message effectively can't be understated. So this is another way for me to build my my muscle, that public speaking muscle. Um, and it's interesting because I've, I've always had some form of performance slash public speaking responsibility. And I'd say over the last five years, that's kind of fallen off. In an environment where I work and I'm expected to present on a daily basis, I realize how low the bar is for a good public speaker or a, a good presentation. You can watch people literally present for 20 minutes reading a slide. And the slide itself has got eight size font in wow. Times New Roman. And we're all just supposed to sit there and listen. And that's a good presentation because he hit all the points. And what that does is that numbs your ability to actually deliver an engaging presentation. And that is such a powerful skill. Being able to stand in front of an audience or even in front of a microphone and keep people listening for half an hour, an hour, an hour and a half is a really important skill. And it's not one to be taken lightly. 
people will think you're smarter than you are if you can yeah. captivate a room with your words. The communicators in every society win. Um, and it's how well can you communicate yourself and your brand. And I think, like you're saying, we are being forced to take that next step of actually um, no longer being faceless, um, addressing that inner almost anxiety of stepping out and speaking. And the podcast is almost that first vehicle before the next inevitable step of actually saying, hi, this is actually who I am. Um, will you accept me? Before we move on, I want to ask you a bit more about that, actually. It's, I wasn't expecting to go down this road, but it's really interesting. How are you finding it? How are you finding... You're, you're a school teacher by profession, so you spend your days speaking to young people. Mm. Uh, and if you're not interesting, if you're not engaging, they lose interest. Yeah. And the beauty of children is there's no filter. If you're boring, they'll tell you, listen, I'm, you're boring. Yeah. And as a result, you have to be interesting. You have to be engaging. How are you finding this as a slightly different environment for, for sharing your, your, your talent, sharing your skills? In, in all honesty, it's, there's no difference. Because communication is communication. Um, unfortunately, I'm, my background's in English. And I've always stressed to pupils that uh, the beauty of English is that it links language and thought it enables you to communicate those ideas which you struggle to say. We've all been there when we've had an idea. We, we knew what we were thinking, but we just couldn't communicate it in words. Now, that's a, a very normal human problem that young people have, older people have. Um, the more you read and the more you actually start to think about your thoughts, the better you'll be able to communicate them. So because it's something which I almost teach through literature, and just helping them to communicate their own ideas and selling it to them that, listen, you might not like this subject, but one day you might have an amazing idea which will either revolutionize the world or revolutionize your world in terms of your family. You need to be able to know how to sell that, to communicate that. Because if you cannot communicate your idea, your idea is dead. Teaching that um, and trying to embody and model it has meant that this process for me hasn't been difficult. What will be will be the next step which I see, which is when we're actually doing it face-to-face. -face. Because then it won't be the skill which will be the issue. The skill is the same, similar to you. But it will be the, the physical interaction and the knowledge that actually they can see you now. Yeah, I've got a very expressive face. <laughs> and it's got me in trouble a lot in the past. One more thing I want to touch upon on what you said, and it's a really almost um, kind of cerebral point. But I think it's a really important one, especially at this time when we're dealing with a mass pandemic. But it's the concept of what an idea actually is um, and what you're trying to do with an idea. You said if you're not able to communicate your idea effectively, it's dead. And... The beauty of that is it mirrors what we're facing with the COVID-19 pandemic mm. in that the coronavirus is exactly that. It's a virus. It's a communicable disease, which means if it doesn't pass from person to person, it dies. Yeah. And how, why, why is this disease so uh, effective? It's because it's highly contagious. Now, in modern media, we've developed a term viral, 
to describe something which spreads very quickly. And it's very obvious where that, that term comes from. But when we're thinking of ideas, I think it's also important to remember what we're trying to do with ideas, which is we want them to spread from person to person. So what elements of a idea help it spread? It needs to be easy to digest. Mm. It needs to be easy to understand. It needs to be easy to share. But as well as that, it needs to be shared in an environment which is receptive to it. So the reason why you know, COVID-19 wouldn't necessarily survive in the North Pole is because it's an inhospitable environment. Mm. So for your ideas to spread effectively, you need to incubate them in a space which is susceptible, which is receptive to that virus. Which means if I'm taking a, a step back again, in order for your idea to be effective, you need to surround yourself with people who are going to help you shape, build, and strengthen your ideas. Yeah. Okay, that was that was a really uh, significant uh, sidestep. We're going to try and make this a short one. I can't be doing um, <laughs> philosoph- <laughs> philosophical uh, deviations like that. I promise, guys, first and only one of the show. No, but that is the perfect segue onto teams because you've just conveyed the struggle of someone communicating their idea and needing an environment which is conducive to the idea growing. And your environment is your team. So this is team take two. So we, we started off talking um, in our last discussion about how do you actually identify the need for a team? And that took about two hours. Um, <laughs> in this discussion, I want to talk more about what makes a team effective and what can we do as generals, as leaders to build and nourish an effective team. And I'd actually like to start by talking about you and I, because we are a team. Anybody listening to this would identify that we have a partnership. They, have, they may have some opinions about how effective that partnership is, they probably at this stage already got their favorites. So, but with that in mind, how do we almost see ourselves as contributors to our overall vision? What's your view on how we work together? What's your view on our strengths, our weaknesses? And mm. you know, what, what were your thoughts on, on me, for, for instance, when, when, when this activity, when this partnership kicked off? Even though I never think about my responses to um, upcoming episodes, I like them to be organic, and this is the question which I always avoid. And I'm asking myself, why do I avoid this question? And I think I avoid this question out of love and consideration for you. And it's a very strange dynamic because on the one hand, I'm being asked, how do I work well with my best friend? On the other hand, I've been asked, how well do you work with your business partner? And there are instances when those two probably shouldn't go together. Um, but there are instances when they're going to work brilliantly. Um, for us, what works well is the level of trust, um, the in- integrity, and the ability to listen and let go. So there's that trust in knowing that the other person is for you. They are truly a confidant. Like, you can share it all. You can lay it out and say, I don't know. 
um, there's that integrity of knowing that their actions will be righteous and honourable. But there's also that ability to let go and know that actually, whilst you might have this title and they have this title, at any given point, you would follow them. And I think that's something which, depending upon the position of a partner you're recruiting, you might want. Actually, no, I take that back. That's something that you want from all of your employees. Yeah. Are you willing to follow them? Do they add that much value that you are willing to actually take a step back, say, I didn't initially think that, but now that you've articulated it and I see the rationale behind it, I, I trust it and I'm going to back it, lead that, champion it. And I think it's because we're not egotistical, even though in our separate fields we're quite subtly authoritative um, and we, we know how to get our way. I think what works well is that humble reflection of, you know, bro, I don't actually agree with that. I'm going to run with it because um, I trust you. Or on the flip side, I don't agree with that at all. <laughs> this is why I don't agree with it. And so it's like, this is an honest conversation which works really well. Um, personally, there's the strategy. So I remember when I first um, reached out to Abby, I reached out to Abby because of a video I watched. So some of you might know Eric Thomas. Um, Eric Thomas is a Christian motivational speaker um, from Michigan. And he shared a video which was a catalyst to me saying, I need a fellow director. I need a partner. Um, I don't need a runner. I need another general. And there was a video of uh, an American horse and it, it showcased what this American horse could do in on the farm. And then it showcased what the American horse could do when it was aligned, when it was almost equally yoked with another horse. And it wasn't that their output was doubled. It was almost increased exponentially. And the, the logic and maths around that just made me realize, actually, I've, okay, I've gone past that whole mindset of just keep everything to yourself. I'm definitely looking for a partner here. Who I need is someone of extreme value who, at the very least, adds as much value as I do, if not more. Meaning, what we will do together will be far greater than myself just being multiplied. And I was fortunate to find that person just, you know, always there. <laughs> From a business standpoint, um, you're for strategy. You, I was more, I was very good at coming up with ideas and running with them. So I would shoot so many ideas out. And in some of our heydays, we were able to actually capitalize on a lot of them because we were shooting from the hip and things which worked stuck and we developed a lot of relationships. But was there any strategy behind that? Was there long lasting um, thoughts on how this could be executed best? Um, in terms of an understanding of markets, trends, design. Uh, there are so many things which you added which I didn't have, which allowed me just to stop and think better than I did previously. So that's, that's my immediate take. One of the benefits of having your business partner also be your best friend is it's very easy to get to a win-win conclusion. And I think in a previous episode, we talked about the difference between win-win versus win-lose versus lose-lose. With no ego 
on the table, we both know that we are trying to get to the best optimum outcome possible, which means that it may not come from me, it may not come from you, it may be spawned uh, from uh, our own collaboration. But because there's no ego, there's no one-upmanship, I think it's a lot easier to to get to a win-win solution. And I think the lesson there is that, especially for founders, it's important to remember that you may not always have the best idea. Definitely. And just because somebody's challenging your idea doesn't mean that they're challenging you. Um, And in order for you to make the most of your business, it may be dropping the ego and actually accepting that somebody else has got a better idea. Uh And I think by having a really good friendship with my business partner, it's a lot easier just to drop that bravado and say, you're right on this occasion, let's go with that. I'm not going to hold on to this. I'm not going to to fight my corner when I'm fighting a losing battle. Let's move on. So I I think that's a very important takeaway for anybody starting a business and the or, or running a business in the early stages. The other one is complacency. A lot of people listening to this may be doing great on their own. They may be achieving their targets. They may be exceeding certain uh, performance metrics. They may be reaching certain milestones that that means that they're quite happy with their success on their own. But just imagine if you brought on somebody else who was just as eager to see you win uh, as you are. What could you possibly achieve by putting those two minds together and once again, leaving the ego at the door? And I think that's the beauty of a strong partnership. And every team member that joins your business in the early stages, not only should be good at doing their job, but also should provide something extra. And I think the extra, if I was going to use any word to describe it, is empathy. Mm, emotional intelligence emotional intelligence and emotional intelligence is varied in that some people have some very acute levels of emotional intelligence and then others with similar emotional intelligence have blind spots and by having more people in the room the more blind spots you unearth and this is why having a diverse workforce is so important because the way that you gain insight and the way that you look at the world through different lenses allows you to appreciate that not everybody sees the world in the way that I do. So how do I build a solution? How do I build an offer to a customer that isn't me? And once again, being black men in a female dominated industry, you need a lot of empathy and you need to be willing to say, I don't know uh, a hell of a lot. We've spoken about that previously in terms of being willing to challenge our own ideas because there's a danger of almost creating like a silo where you actually continually agree with everyone in your team. Now, that might sound great um, for working relationships, but that might not be great for business and your trajectory because if everyone's constantly agreeing and there isn't a disruptive thought or idea being thrown in, or critique, you might happily but blindly be going in the wrong direction. 
Um, it's something we've highlighted in the past, and I think it's something for people who are listening to also acknowledge that you don't necessarily just want to find someone who you get on with. Um, that definitely helps. But you want them to like you so much that they're honest with you and they're willing to critique what's happening. And that's not critiquing you, or it's critiquing how things are performing. I can't remember the name, but there's a Chinese philosopher who coined the statement, and you've heard me say this before, Afalabi, but if there are two leaders who always agree, one of them isn't necessary. Mm. And I stand by that. I think it's very important to put conflict and disagreement in the right context. Conflict is the best way in your business to to get better. It's not collaboration, it's conflict. Um, But it needs to be controlled in the right way. If everybody's agreeing in the same way, then you become blockbuster. (laughs) We don't want that. What's making me laugh, I'm just thinking about, um, we have a member of our team, um, and we've got like a leadership group chat, and whenever Abby and I are disagreeing, she just goes silent. Yep. (laughs) 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 And I I love her wisdom there, (laughs) because it's so wise at that point, probably not to say anything, because I don't know even, it will always be received well. She would never be... And actually, it will probably put an end to the disagreement because we'll probably focus on her. Remember that there's other people involved in this. But it's so important for those disputes of ideas and trajectory to happen so that you really refine how you're getting to where you're going. In her head, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I think her view is probably, I'm going to let these guys just tie themselves out and I'll come and pick up, <laughs> I'll pick up the pieces once they're done. Um, are you you two finished okay so let's get on to work now to 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 deal with that conflict effectively you need to have descendant voices in the room and one of my 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 ethos is around marketing is to start with a negative i think too many people start with a positive when they're trying to, to to sell their business or to sell their product or service my suggestion is you start with a negative. If you're selling a box, your starting point should be nobody wants your stupid box. With that in mind, how can you persuade people that they should have your box? If you start off with the belief that this is a fantastic box and everybody's going to love it, you're not going to do the work required to convince the market that your box is worth having. So when you're bringing in voices to shape your solutions and shape your ideas, always listen out for the person who's saying, nobody wants your stupid box. Because they may have nuggets of information which you need to pay attention to. Those people are the ones that you need to convince that the box is worth having. Agreed. So before I move on to another question, I also want to highlight another point around teams and this definitely goes to the one man army uh, or one woman army which is your team is not just the people on payroll amen the team is not just the people who you pay directly the team is anybody who has a vested interest in your success any supplier any contributor 
any person who you go to on a regular basis for uh, counsel. These are members of your team. And as such, you need to value their input. Not just value, but evaluate, should I say. Because their success is your success and vice versa. So it's very important to understand how that plays into you shaping future solutions, you um, um, making your business more effective and more lean. If you make a decision about your business, it doesn't just affect you. It affects your suppliers. It affects your stakeholders. It affects the people that you talk to on a regular basis. Um, So I think it's important to, to place the people around you in context. And I'd also add that if you find yourself at the early stages and not making very much progress, let's say that you've had an idea and you're trying to build a solution and it's just not getting anywhere, it's not got off the ground or you've been in the same place for six months, my suggestion would be you need to reevaluate your team. Because if you think it's just you by yourself, that's your first failure. But if there are people around you that aren't helping you grow, then either you need to grow your team or you need to change your team. One of the greatest contributors to our brand is um, a good friend of ours who is also a business owner, but in food. And we're in here in BT and he's in food. Um, And I remember reading the book, uh, Think and Grow Rich. I believe you read it also. Mm. And through that book, I learned about mastermind groups and how it was very common, especially in America, um, for very high-profile directors and innovators to communicate their struggles with one another. Even though they were in completely opposite industries and didn't necessarily have the, the ability to solve the other person's problem, what they did have was a vested interest in growth. And thus they were able to, iron sharpens iron, um, filter out ideas and work as a sounding board for one another to come to solutions. And on occasions they were offer great insights, but on most occasions they were just able to encourage and spark an idea which was already within that person. And going through that post process with these almost non-executive executives, these people who are on your team, like Abby's mentioning, but are, are not really on your payroll, identifying them is crucial. There is no reason why you should not be speaking to other business owners about your business challenges. Um, Just sharing your goals, sharing your struggles, sharing your vision so that they can tell you actually your box is terrible. You you need someone to say that to you. You need people to tell you that your box is terrible. Being an entrepreneur is a very lonely existence. And that isn't to say that you won't be surrounded by people, what it means is you'll be few and far between where you meet people who get it. Yeah. Um, And when you do, you latch onto them because they are going through the struggle just like you. So as a result, I think it's very important to to, to keep those people around you. Going back to my philosophical statement earlier about an idea needing the right environment to grow. It's very easy to have an idea die because it's in the wrong environment. And as a result, it's so important that you make sure that the people around you are able to help you build your vision, even if they don't fully understand the detail. 
we said we wanted to talk a little bit about some of the challenges that newly formed teams might face. And I think one of the biggest challenges that um, newly formed teams face is staying motivated. Now, from an academic side, there's a concept which I won't go into too much detail. What, what it talks about is when you start off with a, uh, a team, initially things are great. There's energy. Yep. There's ambition. There's enthusiasm. But as that continues down the road, that starts to wane and people lose motivation. So mm -hmm. what would your suggestions, your advice be to somebody who wants to maintain a high level of motivation in a team? I think one important factor is to really identify who your key players are. Who are the ones which you need to ensure are motivated more than anyone else? Um, everyone needs to be motivated, yes. But who, if they lost their lack of motivation, would have an exponential negative impact upon your business? And, and once you've done that, you can almost work out how that person might be motivated. Because we can share a, a range of different 10 top strategies how to motivate someone. But you need to know the character that you're working with. What works for that person? Um, or it's in instances where motivation for them is they need a, a weekly outline, they need a weekly bulletin, they need weekly headlines of what's going well, how they're doing, um, what needs to be done, and a reminder of the vision. This is what we're working towards. Other people want to be left alone. Um, and what they are motivated by is their bonus and how they are working towards that. Or what they're motivated by is just knowing that they are still adding value so it's almost reflecting upon, okay, what are this person's triggers? What makes them smile? What makes them come to the point of feeling that they've done good work? Is it the bonus? Is it the congratulations actually you have created or been part of something which has been phenomenal? Is it the the kind gestures which you might actually give? I think it's, whilst we could give a blanket statement of these are five great top tips, Doing that finer, detailed character analysis is so important. Really challenging when you've got mass operations and a great deal of people. But that's why I say identifying your key stakeholders, who you need to motivate, ensuring that they have still bought into your vision, that they've still bought into you, that you're in constant communication with them and they understand that actually you're real, you're modeling this, you're doing it, whether it be on social hours, you're, you're showing that you're not cutting corners yourself. That is what will remind them that, you know what, this person is still passionate about this themselves and they've entrusted me with it. I've also got to be. So some practical steps there, just off the top of my head. One is when we talk about sharing the vision, I want to be absolutely precise about what that looks like for us when we share the vision. It's not a intangible concept that we're trying to share. Um, we get our entire team together, we sit, sit down and we talk through what the next 12 months look like in the business in detail. And we leave it open-ended. We don't say this is what is going to happen, we say, this is what we would like to happen, or this is what we would hope to happen, and then offer it up to the rest of the team to challenge. 
to provide input and to provide um, critique. And when we do that, it does a couple of things. First of all, it makes us less dictators and more collaborators. We don't say this is what you're doing and get on with it. We say this is our vision for the future. We're inviting you now to, to help shape that vision. But we start it off. I call it the red pen test. I never put a intangible concept in front of people and expect them to give me ideas. I have to give them something to critique. And the reason why I call it the red pen test is because when I was working as an engineer, I'd often do some very detailed engineering designs. Uh, somebody would ask me, for instance, design a radar system. And I would look at them blankly and say, how do I design a radar system? And they would not tell me. They would just say, go and design a radar system. So I'd go off, I'd take a couple of days and I'd design a radar system on my computer, I'd print it off and then I'd put it in front of a senior engineer who didn't give me any information whatsoever. But now that they've got something in front of them, they pull out their red pen and they cover it in ink. They say, nope, that's wrong, this is wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, do this, do that, do that. And I go away with my piece of paper covered in red pen and I desire a better radar system. And then I take it back to him and then he covers it in red pen again. But it's a little less red pen than the first time. And I redesign the radar. And that's how I build strategy. There is no dictation involved because if you dictate, it's only got the benefit of one person's intellect. I design, I offer it up to critique, and then I redesign. And then I offer it up to critique again. I think that's a really important process that all leaders need to go through because what you're doing is you're iterating and you're refining a solution to a point where everybody who can contribute has contributed. So I just wanted to share that as a very practical insight into what we do within LVH to, to share our vision, but also shape our vision for the future. Um, okay, the, the next point I'll talk about, I guess, is the concept of forming, storming, norming, and performing. It's a lot of rhyming here. But what it is referring to is the stages of building a team and executing. Forming is self-explanatory. You form a team. You form a new team, and it's based on the skills that they provide. Storming is the bit where the team is working out how they uh, gel together. There's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of discussion about who does what. And this is where a lot of innovation occurs. Norming is a bit where everything starts to become process orientated, where we've got a process in place where things become second nature. We instinctively know what our jobs are and how to do it. And then performing is the stage at the end where you say, okay, well, we know what we're doing. Now we just need to get some results. And we need to prove that this formed team can deliver. My challenge to anybody who's building a team is not to stay in the performing state for too long because what happens when all you are focused on is performing based on the processes that you've decide, decided is that you become stale. What you need to do is go back around the loop again. You don't necessarily need to reform a team but you need to go through that storming piece. Why is that storming piece so important? 
Because if you've been performing for six months to a year, people have learned new skills that you may not be aware of, which might make them better suited for a different role. They may have insight, relationships or connections, which mean that they're better suited to con contribute in a different way. So going through that cycle again and storming again, where you've got that conflict building up again, allows you then to norm or do your norming process. And what that is, is are the processes that we're using still fit for purpose or do we need to, do we need to actually update our process? Have we got some out-of-date processes that need to change that will actually make us better at performing again? And when you get to that performing stage, you need to ask yourself the question, have we been performing for too long? Do we need to go back to that storming stage where we build some conflict up and start asking that question, nobody wants your stupid box? But by going around that cycle again and again, it not only makes people fresh and keeps them on their toes, but it also keeps your business operations up to date. There are many organizations who really fret about losing talent, and they do so largely because they haven't gone through that process. Um, if you've gone through that process, what you've done is cleverly identified who's next, who could potentially lead, um, because inevitably you are going to lose talent. Yeah. Um, but what you want to be able to do immediately is to be able to replace those who've been lost because you've created a cycle where knowledge is being shared and leadership is being taught. So you're constantly upskilling those who are coming up to ensure that roles are being filled. And thus, if you do have to go external, you're always going for strength externally and not low-level doers. So let's talk about that a little bit more. So you may have some low-level doers in your organisation. It's, it's not possible to have everybody operating at the highest level. What is your approach to maybe leveling up those low-level doers? Or do you level them up? Do you focus on your, your, your high-quality high talent and keep them around and not necessarily put too much emphasis on the, 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 the low labor-intensive activities? What's your view? Um, I subscribe to almost like the talented tenth idea. It's almost like a Booker T. Washington idea, which is in a different context of race relations and upskilling African-Americans. But it's about pouring into those who show what you're looking for. Now, I say what you're looking for because for different leaders, it'll be different things. For some, it will be enthusiasm. For others, it will be um, ingenuity or creativity or diligence. But once you've identified what your nugget is, look for that and encourage and pour into those. Now, once you've identified that, it might not necessarily just be in all your middle leadership, but you might find it only in one middle leader and few doers. And there you know, actually, those are the people who have the characteristic which you really want to foster in the culture of your organization. And then you can really pour into them to see if they're going to reproduce. I say first identify your talented tenth because you can't pour into everyone. Not because it's labor intensive or you don't have the energy, but because it's not actually productive. Um, from my standpoint, I think it's it's actually more productive to yes, give a certain amount to everyone, 
but do you give your gems to those who you know are going to truly action it and influence others? Um, scenario, if I know that pouring into A means that B and C gets an equal share and A becomes as strong as me, that is better than pouring into all A, B and C. Because I now know that A's had the opportunity to have that higher level function of pouring into someone else. They are now a leader also, rather than just being a recipient like B and C. I, I don't think that's a concept that's going to be too hard for most people listening to appreciate. Uh, because in any workforce, we know that there's a small collection of people responsible for most of the productivity. Um, And this is actually something that's been modelled in science and in the Bible. So in science, we refer to it as the Pareto distribution. Yeah, 80-20. The 80-20 rule. Um, And in the Bible, it's referred to as the Matthew principle. Yeah. To those who have have much, uh, everything will be given. Uh, to those who have little, everything will be taken away. Yeah. Um, and we we see that in 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 life that the individuals who are hardworking, productive, and successful are responsible for a lion's share of the productivity, and therefore it's understandable that you'd want to commit your energy and your effort to those people. Definitely. The balance, though is not leaving people behind and understanding where people fall and what what people's responsibilities are. You can't have a team full of A-type personalities um, because what happens is the ones who are getting the least shine will move on. They they will move on so that they can be the, the star player elsewhere, absolutely. So you do need to, to, to ring fence your talent, but you also need to ensure that you have some really strong supporting players. Maybe now's a good time for me to talk about the TV show that I've just started watching called The Last Dance, which is all about the Chicago Bulls in the ni- 1990s and how they were the most um, impactful sports team on the planet at the time. And it all centered around one individual. It all centered around Michael Jordan. But what was interesting, what was the stroke of genius was the head coach and the general manager made some really effective trades which would allow Michael Jordan to shine. They made trades, they made transfers, which meant that we had players dedicated to defending Michael Jordan as he would make his way to the basket. Bullies who just wouldn't let other people touch him. And once you understand the dynamics of your team, those star players, I think it's then useful to understand how you recruit effectively to make sure that they can do their job right. It's it's such an important... I think sport is the best analogy for it because sport is so visual. And that's where people can see it in almost a very light-hearted manner, but it's extremely serious if you're in it because you're consciously building a team and selling players 
mm. within that team to make it better. Uh, we don't think about selling people in businesses. Um, you're just almost restructuring. People come and go as they please. But in sport, you're, you're tying people down to contracts and you sell them, you trade them for other people. But the beauty of sport is that at times, you do not have to have the best 11, if it's football, or 14, if it's another sport, to be the best team. You just have to have the best formula. And that might mean you've got a certain number of players who are protecting one or two. You're allowing them to be free so that you are the most efficient. Um, it's, it's, it's the beauty of sport because at times it's not always the most skilled who win, but it's it's the most tactical and strategic who win. And I think in during this COVID period, that's also going to apply where we, we have to speak about Primark at some point, but it might not be now. It's not always those who have the, the greatest resume who are going to win historically but it's those who are most resourceful of what they have who are going to win. Yes, and those people who are willing to put ego to the side. Mm. So we've mentioned this previously, but at a time when you are facing significant challenge, the companies that fail are the companies whose senior leadership are unable or unwilling to roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty. Um, We used to work at a call centre, And we were team leaders, which meant that for most of the day, we would point and shout. Um, But on occasion, as we had targets to reach as part of our market research, we had to let go of our team leader role and get on the phones and do the job of our our team members, our subordinates. And if you didn't, you just didn't get paid. Um, so there's a level of humility involved when things are difficult. When we knew that there were really pressing targets that needed to be met, there was no doubt that we were going to get on the phones and reach those targets. But if we got too prideful, maybe got a little bit too comfortable as team leaders, so much so that we didn't think we could take a step back into our previous role, then maybe we wouldn't, be a, we wouldn't have been as successful. And applying that to this environment, a lot of people who've made success up, at, up until this point have gotten to a position where they may have hired people to do some of the dirty work for them. But in order for them to really increase productivity and really get the success that they're looking for they may need to get their hands dirty again they may need to start packing boxes definitely they may need to start doing post office runs they may need to they may need to start replying to emails again i i I can't support that more um it was such a valuable lesson and we we still use that phrase today getting on the phones because it, it means at any point i am willing to go back to serving diligently um because if you're not you're going to miss an opportunity um if if you're not willing to how can you lead those who are now doing it if they don't believe that you will do it anymore if they believe that that task is too low for you there might be a barrier and there needs to be a barrier but there might be an unnecessary barrier between you and them for them to actually communicate effectively 
with you when you're having that vision statement meeting and you want them to critique what's going on because they're the ones who are going to be delivering it. So if they're not going to critique you and they're not going to speak openly, you're showcasing that dream that you had, which isn't going to happen. And there's some arrogance here. And there are two thoughts in my head. I'll share them both. The arrogance is I need to go back on the phones and I need to show my team that I do it better than them. Um, and I need to show them, okay, I did get promoted. I am your team leader, but there's a reason for this. I may be the coach, but I can still shoot a free free pointer. I can still I can still uh, score a free kick from outside the box. That's one way of thinking, but it's not the only way of thinking. The other way is, I have paid somebody who's better at better than me at customer service but I now need to do customer service. So I need to be humble enough to go to that person and say, listen, I may be signing your paychecks, but you need to teach me. Yeah. I need to learn from you because you've been doing this for longer than I have. It's very interesting to put that into perspective, but there are now some roles within our business that people have been doing for almost as long as we have. Yeah. Yeah. So ignoring that knowledge, ignoring that expertise is a massive failure. If we talk about having a, biz- having a, um, a team, we're working well, and we have a strategy discussion, that strategy discussion identifies a new revenue stream, a new business model. Basically, we need to pivot. It's time to transform the business. It's time to take our business in a different direction. I want to talk a little bit about restructuring and some of the pitfalls and some of the challenges that companies face when they realize that their business is turning, it's transforming, like many during the COVID-19 period will, and they need to transform their team. What are some of the failings you think that, that organizations face when they realize it's time to transform? Communication, communication, communication. Um, and I say that because the decision that you're having on a higher level, boardroom level, um, direct conversation level, um, might be in the best interest of the business, but your business consists of a group of people who have individual lives, responsibilities, cares. And if some of those decisions negatively impact them, and that decision isn't effectively communicated with empathy and compassion, you have a massive issue on your hands, not just for that individual, um, but for everyone else in your organization. Because in that season, in that moment, they will realize how you you truly see them and value them. Um, I imagine in this period, we're very fortunate we haven't had to do this to actually get rid of anyone. But imagine in this period, people are having to um, actually part ways with certain people. And how you do that is crucial. I, I think you can do that with integrity. People are um, intelligent enough to understand the season that we're in. And people are intelligent enough to understand that some people might, for a period of time, be shifted somewhere else or to lose their position completely. Think about your organization and think about the lasting effect that will happen those who are remaining and you want to keep. So I think that's a good way of opening up in terms of just remembering that we're dealing with human beings and 
they're the same ones who were the, I want to say the architects, but the, the miners to your success. So when they were the miners to your success, you kept hold of them, you congratulated them. Now that external factors has meant that your success is in danger, we have to think about how we treat them. Um, there is another failing that people have on the opposite side. I think what you demonstrate is the best approach for somebody who maybe lacks empathy when mm-hmm. making a change. I think the other side of it is the people who have too much empathy where they restructure and because they care too much for the individuals around them who maybe no longer are adding value to the business, those people stay on and they can stay on in in two different forms. They can stay on in their existing role, which is now redundant and claim a paycheck, but not necessarily add value, um, which can actually create resentment uh, for the rest of the team who maybe see somebody who isn't contributing but is also taking a decent salary home. That's one element. The other element is as part of your restructure, you put a team member whose role is redundant into a new role that they're not qualified for, which is even more dangerous because when you are doing a restructure, you're starting that journey again of nobody cares about your stupid box, which means you can't afford to have people who aren't at their absolute best pushing and convincing people that your box is worth caring about. So it may sound quite heartless, but you have to look at the big picture, which is by holding on to individuals who are no longer adding value, you may actually be risking your whole business and therefore putting the livelihoods of multiple people at risk. On top of that, you're doing a disservice to the individual who who you're keeping hold of because what you're not offering them is an opportunity for them to grow or change and upskill, which is absolutely vital. And I think somewhere in the middle is giving those people whose jobs are no longer valuable, the opportunity to learn, to upskill, to teach themselves new skills so that they are once again valuable. And I think that's probably where you can balance pragmatism with Mm. compassion. There's an argument that if you have a performance management structure already in place, when those unprecedented, unpredictable times occur, like COVID-19, you have something to fall back on when that restructure actually occurs. So we can almost start to discuss how do you effectively performance manage the team to prepare for such an occasion, both to reward excellence, but also to ensure that each and every individual is adding value and not just keeping a seat warm for someone else. I think bonus structure is key. I think no matter how small your business is, you can always, you should always be in a position where you can financially reward good performance. And once again, this comes back to knowing your numbers well, 
if you're able to quantify the added value that people are bringing, then it's no harm in actually making sure that those individuals who are bringing in value are well compensated. I think it's absolutely vital. But that's not the only way. I think it's also important that you reward verbally. Our generation, probably more than any other generation, and the generation that follows us, is more sensitive to feedback than, than ever before. Yeah. And, and as a result, I think our words are key. I th- if, if I'm honest, I think some of our staff would have valued feedback more than a bonus. Constructive feedback was more valuable than a bonus to the point where I was doing performance reviews every three months because I didn't want to burden my staff with regular performance reviews. And all but one said, can we do this every month? Because I think there is something about knowing you're doing a good job. And I think there's a level of concern around doing a poor job and not knowing it. Yeah. So I think those are two areas uh, most organizations refer to as R&R, rewards and recognition. I think it's so important to financially reward your staff. At whatever is financially viable for you as a company, that's your up to you, but it's, that's key. But recognition as well. Take somebody into a room uh, on a periodic basis where the focus is them and just share recognition for their for their work. I've recognized what you've done for this business and I appreciate you. It means a lot coming from a manager. Yeah. But also the flip side of that is by having that mechanism in place, it makes discipline a lot more easy because you've already got a mechanism where if somebody isn't doing their job right, you can take the bonus away. You didn't get your bonus for these reasons. And it's not a case of just saying you don't get your bonus. It's a case of clearly identifying what constitutes a bonus so that when someone doesn't get a bonus, they know where they've fallen short. But also, when it comes to recognition, when we've already set up a mechanism where recognition happens on a regular basis, it's a lot easier to turn that recognition into constructive feedback. So instead of a discussion just about how well you're doing, we're now having a discussion about the things that you've done well and the things that you could do better. And creating, it doesn't matter um, what mechanism you use, whether it's a face-to-face meeting, I would recommend face-to-face personally. I think there's something about um, providing constructive feedback that should be face-to-face. But it doesn't have to be. You may be running a business from a different country, uh, in which case use the tools that are available to you. But I think those two things are absolutely key for good performance management. We have done things such as allow people to have days off on their birthdays and um, allow them to have flexi time well before COVID where they might need to go to the airport or they just would like to work from home on that specific occasion and come to office later on. What impact do you think that has on the team dynamics when people know that actually they can, when needed, send that message early in the morning to say, actually, is it okay if I do this? Well, some interesting things. Um, I think the first one is trust. So there's an element of trust in the atmosphere when you know that somebody's not breathing down your neck. And I think that's so key because 
when people know that they are trusted, they are able to do their best work. But also when they're trusted, I, I, I can't say that this is true for everyone. I can only say it's true for me and it's true for, 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 for our team. But I think when people are trusted, they're more willing to go the extra mile. Yeah. The other thing I would mention is the shift from a time-driven focus, as in how much time you put into your work. Okay, I've done my eight hours, I can go home. To an output-driven uh, focus. Now, I know what I would like to see from my team by the end of the day. I don't care whether it takes them four hours or eight hours. If they do what is needed in four hours and decide that they, need to, they want to spend their remaining four hours on Instagram, as long as they do it to a high standard, that's fantastic. Because in, in turning an eight-hour task into a four-hour task, what they've demonstrated is innovation. Yeah. And I need to pay attention to what they've done because how did you turn what I thought was an eight hour task into a four hour task? If you for, if you force somebody to work in a time bound space, then they are just going to drag out the work to fill the time. To fill, to fill the time. And then you don't get innovation. Um, there's an adage at work, um, which is if you want, if you want innovation, if you want something done, uh, in a transformational way, give it to the most lazy engineer yeah. in your team. Because what that person is going to do is <laughs> they'll write some code that does their job for them. Um, or they'll find an innovative technology, some AI solution, which can achieve the job just as good or if not better. If you give people a more flexible approach to work, they're given the freedom to be more innovative, more creative, and if they finish their work faster and they've got more time, then chances are they're going to commit some, some of that time to your business. So you get more productivity out of them anyway. So that's my approach. And as a result, what I've seen from our team is they just work more. And I really have to tell some of them to stop sometimes because you're messaging me on a Saturday. We don't ask you to work on a Saturday. We but you're tell you you know you're sending me links to bits of information that we find interesting. You're highlighting updates from what the competitors are up to. You're sending me um, uh, influencers who you think we should be collaborating with on your day off. You're offering to work on your holiday. You're offering to you offer to work on your holiday. We really we really appreciate. Should we give her a shout out? We, just, we should, we should, Natalia, we love you. We, like, love, you. we love you, Natalia. Um, so much. And I think part of that is the work ethic that she came to the organization with. We can't claim that we created that. But I think the element that maybe we can take some credit for is giving her the freedom to, to be the best that she could be. Mm. And it highlights another question, which is how do we continue that journey for her? It's something which we've, which we've discussed beforehand, and it links to thought leadership. But it's, it's, it's planning the next step for the individual and allowing them to um, join in that conversation. Mm. Where do they want to go? Now, here's the radical thing which I'm about to say, which some people might think is crazy. 
I would love to be able to help someone get to where they want to be, even if that's not with me, for two reasons. One, so that they can get there for themselves, which is just a great accomplishment for them, nothing to do with me. But two, it helps me to realize that I can get someone there. Yeah. Even if they don't stay with me. Because if I can get someone there, I can do it again. Um, and I think as organizations, as leaders, we need to really pour into that, using the Pareto principle, pour into your talented temple, whatever you want to call it, your, your select few, and help them to become the best version of themselves through critique, through challenges, through self-reflection, through performance management, through explicit coaching or mentoring, so that they can grow and flourish. Keep them for as long as you possibly can. Hopefully the business has grown to the point that they can grow within the organizational business. But if they ever do say, actually, I've hit my ceiling here, and they opt to go, if you've effectively kept that knowledge and allowed them to be that A in that A, B, C analogy I shared previously, they have taught others and they have poured into others as you've poured into them because you've taught them that leadership is influence and that the greatest leaders develop other leaders. So they've tried to replicate what you have done through them because they see actually that that's far more valuable. Um, the person who does is great, but the person who can teach the person to do it's even greater. The only way to create a self-sustaining, resilient business is to become a leader of leaders. That's the aim. That's the ambition. There's no, I don't really take much credit from being a leader at this stage. And if, you know, that was your ambition, congratulations. There's another step, which is how do you build leaders? Who made you a leader? What, what principles did they apply to create you? And what can you do in order to pass that on? That's when you really, have cracked the code. So powerful. We've talked about one of our stars and we could spend a whole podcast talking about how fantastic she is. Yeah. I want to talk about the other side of the coin. And we mentioned uh, Weapon X in the last episode. But the, the inevitable aspect of building a team is letting members of the team go. Some people who just don't fit in to your culture. These aren't people who you've lost as a result of a restructure and who, whose role no longer adds value. These are people who are unable to meet your expectations. Now, what is your approach to professionally, respectfully, letting someone go that keeps aligned with your ethos as a as a leader i think there needs to be clarity that they've got to go and there needs to be clarity of when they're going um the question is a very poignant question because you said um professionally i've, I've been in that instance and i think anyone who's like a director or a founder may have gone through this, where you've been in the instance where, because you've poured so much into it, when someone abuses it, it feels like they're abusing you. You can't help but take it personally. And it's very dangerous when that happens because your reaction to their explicit abuse might not be professional um, when you reflect upon it. 
So the, the key is to ensure that there's clarity that they are going and clarity as to when they're going. So having that conversation with that person, ideally face-to-face, helping them to realize how we got to this point and ideally helping them to articulate how we got to this point because they, they've got to... Human beings are very good at being in denial and people can sit through a conversation and not realize that, hold on, did, have I just been divorced? They, they were in that conversation. They didn't realize they just got dumped. Um, they need to be able to see that they're a party and an active participant. Take them through the steps. Give them the, the resolution of parting ways and then the steps as to how you are parting ways, i.e. Um, when that final day will be, when the final paycheck will be, how references will be processed, etc., etc., and expectations up until the point of them leaving. All based on their contracts. We spoke about contracts beforehand. Definitely have a contract. Review the contract just to see what you've written in the contract. But that, that clarity and that communication is, is so crucial once again. So to add to that, I think it's very important to to remember the idea that a firing should be rare. It should be rare that you have to sack somebody. Yeah. Because the process of onboarding someone means that you've done all of the checks and this person has passed probation, which means that they have value that you've identified. Um, There are many reasons why a relationship can go sour that, would lead you to, to sack someone, but it should be rare. If you find yourself regularly sacking people, then some soul searching needs to be done. Because what I would argue is that there is a flaw in the recruitment process Definitely. rather than the, the, the staff that you're bringing on. Maybe your job description doesn't effectively articulate what you're looking for. And therefore, people keep joining and disappointing. Um, so that, that's one thing. I think a, a firing should be rare. The next thing should be that a firing or a sacking shouldn't be a surprise. And what I mean by that is it shouldn't be a case of somebody coming into work, being told, today, you know, today is your last day or, you know, you're, you, you are going to fulfill your notice period and after that you're gone, and them looking at you like, I didn't see this coming. There was no way I could have known that this was going to happen. If you are communicating effectively, people who are underperforming would have had multiple warnings regarding their performance so that they know that they could be close to being fired. Written warnings sent to them so that they are aware that I am on the verge of losing my job. Because you don't want to be in a situation where you are doing something immoral or unethical to get somebody out the door. I think you want to follow a solid process of giving people time and understanding as to why they're actually losing their job. So so those are, I guess, some high-level strategic statements. And maybe some more tactical things are when you're actually in the room, and I do think you must sack somebody face-to-face, when you are in the room with a person, you are quick. 
And this is something I, I remember the first time I had to, to fire somebody. I actually spent so much time on Google trying to figure out how is what is the best way to sack someone. You know, do I tell them how great they are? But if I tell them how great they are, they're probably going to be really confused as to why why are they being sacked? You know, do I go in straight and just, you know, tell them, you know, pack your bags and leave? Do I ask them what they think is is um, going well and going wrong? I just wanted to understand the best way to manage this situation for somebody who arguably I was still caring about because it's never a good thing to, to sack someone and you should never relish saying goodbye to somebody no. uh, because you are affecting their life in a really negative way. But the first thing I would recommend is be quick. Once you invite somebody into a room, within the first two minutes of them being invited into that room, they should know that they are being sacked. You don't go around the houses and ask them about their performance. You don't tell them how fantastic they are. That can all come with time. If I was on the receiving end of a discussion, I wouldn't want a five-minute monologue about how great I am to then hear that I've lost my job. Because the only thing that's going to be ringing in my head on my train journey home is... This person just spent five minutes telling me how fantastic I am. And then they sacked me? Confuse him. I would recommend that you are quick to explain that the person has lost their job. And in support of that, you have to be direct. There should be no doubt in the person's mind that they have lost their job. And as you said, uh, Afalabi, they should know when their last paycheck is. They should be no, They should be aware of when they will be working until. And that should be in line with their contract. There may be some leeway. For instance, if they have some holiday, they may want to take that holiday so they can leave yeah. faster. I'm just going to mention holiday. Um, we have to mention holiday with contracts and uh, notice periods. Um, people need to decide whether people can take holidays once their notice has been given. Um, hypothetically, you could hand me my notice. I have... I don't know what three months left, and that time I might opt to actually just take a month off because I'm use up all my holiday. Um, is that something which you are going to agree with in the contract initially? So just keep that in mind. Yeah, no, it's really put and to to get really down in the weeds with that statement. Your hol the holiday provision that you offer is for a full year. So if you're giving somebody 28 days off, for example, that's assuming that they work a full year. If that person only works six months, it's fair um, and it should be highlighted in uh, the terms of your contract that they only receive half of their holiday provision. And that should be proportional all the way down to a week. So if someone's working a week, you know they don't necessarily get a day off at all. So yep. keep keep that in mind and make sure that it's very clear to um, the, the the employee that they don't get to just have a free free holiday um, because they've been set. Um, the next point I'll have, which maybe is a slightly confusing one, is listen. In sharing your view as to why someone has lost their job and why you want to part ways with them, it's also important to hear their perspective. They know they've lost their job, but what do they have to say 
about it. Now, this isn't so that they can convince you to give you to give them um, their job back. This is so that you can learn whatever lessons that they can give you about that experience. Maybe you were too harsh. Maybe you weren't concise enough. Maybe you didn't give them enough warning. Maybe they felt like they weren't part of the team. Whatever the reason is, this is your opportunity to take some lessons learned. Now, this doesn't mean that you're undoing anything that you've picked up. All it means is that you're going to take on what they've said and apply those lessons learned to future situations like that. Wise words. So in summary, be quick, be direct, listen, document your lessons learned. We talked about how we wanted to end this because we knew we were going to end this by talking about letting people go. Yeah. And it's quite deep, bro. Um, it's dark outside. I'm feeling a little bit emotional. And me too, me too. I'm going to just you know, get under my covers after this, I think, and just rock myself to sleep. Instead of that, I want to talk about something that could be quite optimistic. I want to finish by just asking you the question. We're in a incredibly historic time. Things have changed to a point where our day-to-day lives are unrecognizable. But restrictions are going to go away soon. But what does the future hold? So my question to you is, now that we've all experienced collectively this global pandemic, how does life change? Now, that is the billion-dollar question. Um, my simple answer is nothing will change and everything will change. And that those in society who win will win and those in society who lose will lose. And my expanded answer, which hopefully I don't rant on for too long, is that we have all been forced into a cocoon. But we're not all going to come out as butterflies. Unfortunately, some of us are going to come out as dead caterpillars. That sounds so morbid. Wow. Um, I was about to say, this is a beautiful metaphor. And you, you just went left. It went left. <laughs> I'll resurrect it soon. I'm going to focus on the dead but, um, <laughs> caterpillars. <laughs> from a, a business standpoint and from a personal standpoint, people have gone into this cocoon phase and potentially they have plateaued or they've just decided to regress and meditate on all the negativity, meditate on how much they've lost, meditate on the fact that what was going to be such a beautiful future is now potentially lost. Now, that's happening in COVID, but in reality, that happens all the time anyway. However, there are other people who in this time period are are still in that contained, almost isolatory, confined space but they're using this opportunity to strategize and to think and to be creative. And they are the ones who are going to innovate and thus nothing has changed. We're going to come out of this phase and there will be innovators and there'll be those who are following on to imitate what the innovators have done. We're going to come out of this phase when people are going to produce a great deal. There's going to be so much music. There are so many books which are going to come out. There's going to be so many films. There are so many ideas. But there will also be so many people who have done nothing. And my fear for some is that that period of doing nothing will mean that when the the bell goes 
and everyone can step back into the ring, they're going to be very sluggish. Um, during this time period, uh, Boohoo, Amazon, um, their share price have gone up by 20%. And some people haven't seen a 20% increase in anything but their body fat index. Like, how are you increasing? So I'm excited for this period because for those who are being forced to rethink how they do what they do, they're going to come up with new and inventive ways. I was speaking to um, a teacher who's got a very large tuition company, over 500 kids. Um, he used to travel to Liverpool from London to tutor on the weekends. Um, he's now using Zoom to do that. A tragedy, World War tragedy has forced him to stay at home to earn the same amount of money, but not shower and stay in his bed. <laughs> now, now, why will he, once lockdown is over, get in his car and drive to Liverpool? So we're, we're seeing how there will be fruit, there, there will be opportunities for immense change. But how are people positioning themselves? Do you have a team that you are speaking with who might not be on your payroll, but you're just talking about how you're doing what you're doing? Or are you on season six of whatever Netflix program you're watching right now thinking, what should I move on to next? I would hazard a guess and say that anybody who's listening to this doesn't fall into the Netflix um, and chill category. If you're listening to this, you're probably searching for answers or at least looking for somebody else to help you sharpen your ideas. But you're, you're absolutely right that a lot of people are going to fall behind. This is a incredible... Test of character. Test of character, yes. Oh, uh, this, this, is, this, is your, this is a gym right now. We're all in the gym. And this is not real life, quote unquote, because we are going to return to normality at some point, whatever that looks like. And the people who have established the skill set, the muscle memory, the understanding to navigate this type of environment are the ones who are going to thrive the most in the future. And the ones who use this time to catch up on sleep, catch up on rest, are going to be well rested. <laughs> One thing that I'm keen to, to, to highlight for, for any of my service businesses that might be listening and my product businesses listening is what we've established during this time is that there's very little I need to leave my house for. I can live my life quite comfortably and stay at home. I can get yeah. most of my shopping uh, from Amazon and uh, Tesco delivery, Ocado delivery, etc. I can get my clothes from the likes of Boohoo, Zara, ASOS, etc. They're all still providing uh, deliveries. Um, and I can still live a reasonably comfortable life in the Western world. So people are going to become slightly more agoraphobic, mm. which is why am I leaving my house unless I don't have to? Yep. So the question for you as a service business or as a product business is how do you turn your solution, your product, your service 
into an experience because those are the things that are not going to change. I'm not necessarily going to leave my house to go and pick up some shopping because um, Tesco delivery has been proven perfect during this period. Um, but I am going to leave my house for an experience, whatever that looks like. So the question to you is how do you transform what you're doing into an experience so that your clients have a reason to engage with your brand. If you need people to leave their house to engage with your brand, then you need to create an experience for them, something that they can snap, something that they can put on Instagram Live, something that they can share with friends. Restaurants are going to be fine. I promise you now, if you're a restaurant and you produce good food, you're going to be fine. Oh, you're going to go for a spike. You're going to go for an absolute spike. That's good. People are sick of tasting their own food. You're going to be fine. But if you're a salon, and I know that I can get someone to come to my house and do my hair, and I also know that while I'm in the salon, the person doing my hair is going to be on the phone, talking in a language I don't fully understand. Burning going, my... Say again? Burning my ends. Burning my ends. There's going to be music playing that I don't like. There's going to be a very weird smell of slightly spiced food that I don't know where it's coming from. If that's the experience that you're currently offering to your customers, they're not coming back. The other thing that I think is going to change is data. I think what we're seeing at the moment is how data is becoming more and more personal. We've spoken more recently about how we are able to use data to identify people's body temperature, how we can use data or, or, or use applications, wearable devices to, to track people's body temperature or to track people's heart rate. Now, that data is going to be absolutely vital to people trying to offer products and services. If we know by looking at your body temperature and your body temperature and your heart rate, what content inspires you? What content excites you? Because it causes a spike in your heart rate, or it causes you to perspirate a little bit more. That's going to be absolutely vital to marketers. And you could ask yourself the question: Well, is that really going to happen? Are we going to be able to use wearable devices in order to um, track people's uh, biometric data and use that to sell them stuff. What did you say? We already are. We already are. So that is something I think we're going to see happen a lot more following this period. We are now more conscious of our biometric, biometric markers. People are more conscious with things like Fitbits, um, of their sleep habits, of their heart rate, of their body temperature. And all of that information is going somewhere. And as soon as you opt in to providing that information, marketers, businesses could potentially make better use of that information for selling you stuff. And I really think that we're on the cusp of that transformation happening more broadly. I was holding this back, but that's just not very like us. And we're, we're in a season where 
more than ever, you can get in contact with almost anyone. And you can fill in that gap as to who do you want to get in contact with. Um, one of those gaps, I believe, should include your adjacent um, competitors and those who also have customers of the same demographics as you. And I say that because this is an amazing opportunity for you to actually speak to people who have data. You have data. They have data. You want their data. They want your data. And to cross-pollinate. Um, long gone is a time when you are just seeking for customers. I think what you are seeking for right now is information on those customers and their interests. Because once you have that and you have their influencers cosign, which isn't that guy or girl on Instagram, but is that company that they like, then you have a way in to offer your service or your product. And it's going to be really interesting to see how that unfolds in the coming weeks and months. Because I, I don't believe we'll be the only ones doing that. I do believe others will. And I'm interested to see the partnerships with companies which are going to come out of COVID. We've done it again, bro. One hour, 50 minutes. We need to stop talking about teams. We need to stop talking about teams. It was, a, it was clearly a very interesting discussion. I didn't realise we had so much in the tank when it came to teams. I think it's, you know, it's, it's a little insight into what it will be like if we actually speak about leadership as a topic in its own. Because team, is, you cannot get away from it. Um, I, I'm a firm believer that environment's everything. Um, and inevitably that includes your team being everything. So it's inevitable that it will be this long. Apologies, guys, for going over again. We've now got four hours of content, roughly, on Teams, but that's just how long it takes. We promise next week we're going to touch on something different, but I really hope that people got some value from this as a discussion. Remember, this is just two people sharing their thoughts and opinions. We're not experts in this space. We're just people who have applied a lot of the lessons that we've learned uh, to our business endeavors and had some, some success. Um, we really want to hear what you think and we really want to hear your questions. But I'm actually going to challenge people who are listening to do something slightly different this week. Once again, if you've got to this stage of the the podcast we appreciate you we love you um we apologize for having you listening this long um you might be asleep right now and you might just be waking up to this moment if that's the case then i'm glad that our voices were super soothing enough to get you there um but the challenge for this week is as well as sharing questions i would really like for you to share your expensive lessons what yeah. business lesson what corporate lesson have you learned that you hold on to that puts you in good stead for the future? What mm. gem of information have we been dancing around but haven't really shared yet that you think is absolutely vital for anybody that we're speaking to to hear? I really want to challenge you guys to think deep and ask yourself what bit of information, what nugget of truth have you been holding on to that's helped you navigate the challenges of your life? And how can that potentially have an impact on the people listening to this? I think that would be amazing. Um, 
and for the fact that people have actually stayed on to this point, um, I think my bonus for this week is I'm going to give you something ridiculous and I'm going to tell you why I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you my phone number. Sounds mad. Um, at some point, we're probably going to do a session on networking. And it's something which we all need to improve on, myself included. Um, if you're still using business cards, throw them away. Social media has killed business cards. Networking, you want to reduce as many barriers to that person meeting you as possible. And one way of doing that is not giving them a business card, not even giving them your social media handle, but giving them your telephone number. You want the business. So why are you creating blockers? So your bonus is 079-302-54976. Take that nugget. Next time you go to network, give people your number. You want them to call you. Stop pretending. And yeah, no special pictures sent to Afala. Okay, I'm going to send a couple pictures to you. I'm not going to lie. Uh, just, just to kick it off, just to get the ball rolling, I'll send you a couple pictures just to, to, to annoy you. Memes galore. No, honestly, I think that's a great, um, a, a great thing to share. And you're absolutely right. No social media ham- handles in 2020. No LinkedIn ads, no IG ads, no email addresses. What is the lowest barrier to entry when it comes to your engagement? Absolutely. It's, it's do it. Um, why we haven't done it beforehand, I don't know. It's an expensive lesson, but I know the next time I'm on a stage and I'm going to say, oh, thank you very much. Here's where you can contact me. The number will be there. Let's go over ourselves. People aren't going to send you naked pictures. They're not going to prank call you. You're not that special. If they do call you, it's for what you wanted. Nothing more to add. This has been another episode of Expensive Lessons. Hope to hear from you next week. Stay safe, stay blessed, stay sane, stay corona-free. God bless. God bless. Thank you all. Peace.